Dr. Gary Schilling is one of the best-known analysts in the English-speaking world. He joins me on the line now. Gary, you've done a wonderful job preparing your subscribers for the deflationary period that we are living in. You wrote a brilliant book in 2010 describing the kind of uh, environment that we're living in that we've seen manifested in things like uh, you know, phenomenal drops in commodities, record low interest rates, etc. One of the things that occurs to me, though, in reading the book was why... Has it taken so long, or if even at all, for, uh, for example, central banks to understand that's the fundamental kind of overview of what's going on in the world right now? Boy, you got me. <laughs> you got me. I, I, I mean, there is so much conviction that just a little bit more monetary or a little more fiscal stimulus is going to restore rapid growth. And to me, it's a very simple situation. We are going through... Well, the title of my book was The Age of Deleveraging, Investment Strategies for a Decade of Slow Growth and Deflation. We're unwinding all the excesses, financial excesses in particular, the 80s and 90s. It normally takes 10 years or eight years into it, and the rate we're going, it may take more than 10 years. But there's very little recognition of this. There's somehow the feeling that that, uh, monetary and fiscal policy are omnipotent, but despite tremendous uh, fiscal stimulus and, of course, in quantitative easing in the U.S., uh, in uh, in Japan, in the Eurozone, uh, aggressive monetary policy in the U.K., despite all this, these, this deleveraging is such a strong force that it's overcome. And, and where do we end up? Well, in the U.S., uh, inflation-adjusted GDP has risen in this recovery. It started in the middle of '09. 2.2% annual rate. In my book in 2010, I said I thought it would be 2%. Basically, that's the way it's been, and I think that's the way it will continue until this is this is over. We'll get back to rapid growth, but probably not for at least a few more years. It's and of course the implications are huge, and it's kind of a word you can you can say oh deflation and people sort of gloss over or, or glaze over rather, and yet. You know, look at what it's done. I mean, this is why we're talking about uh, what the rate you borrow at. It's what your pensions are earning in the fixed income side. That's why people, we've talked about this earlier today, Gary, where people earn that search for yield because they need to get a return on their investments, whether it's the retirement accounts or whether they're using it, you know, month to month because they're already in retirement. Uh, The list is just such a long one uh, that this is, I see, the key thing to understand is, yes, a low growth environment, implications for interest rates. Uh, stocks, commodities. Yeah, as I say, the list is huge. Oh, abs- absolutely. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of really concentrating on the implications. I mean, for example, uh, we're seeing a continuation of what I started talking about literally in 1981. Uh, I call it the bond rally of a lifetime. The yield on the 30-year U.S. Treasury bonds then was 15.2%. It's now down to 2.8%, and, of course, as the rates have dropped over these 30, uh, what, 34 years now, uh, we've seen a tremendous rally. Uh, they're up six times, and that has, uh, uh, they, that, that has, beat, uh, that has beat stocks by a long shot. So uh, I think that's one clear implication. Another one, of course, is, is the uh, low inflation, declining commodity prices. And uh, I hate to say this for a loony, but uh, you know, it's a little rough one on uh, Canada as an export, a commodity export-driven economy. And it's uh, obviously we're seeing that effect in the loony. We're also seeing in the Aussie and the Kiwi. And, of uh, course, the peso and other, and other uh, energy-related currencies. 
I'm talking to Dr. Gary Schilling. You've read him maybe in Forbes magazine, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and of course he's got his own publication called Insights. Uh, great stuff. Uh, let me just come back to this and, and again allude back to the interest rate scenario because if we had talked uh, maybe a few months ago, you wouldn't have said it, but you know that the consensus was for a September no later than the end of the year rate rise in the federal for the federal reserve that seems to be moved off the table now exactly as you've described in that all the numbers are so darn mediocre or a little worse like uh you know, labor participation is, is worse than mediocre, but look at the retail sales numbers out of September we got this week. Again, nothing in it would suggest that you need interest rates higher. No, not at all. Well, you, you remember that famous speech in Macbeth, a soliloquy, when he says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace to the last syllable of recorded time. Well, that's what we got with, well, that's what we got with the Fed. They're going to raise rates six months from now, and it's a rolling six months, and they've been saying that now for five years. And, of course, they have, just like the consensus, have looked for a much stronger economy. If you look at their forecast, matter of fact, in our October newsletter, we looked at this in detail since they started publishing their forecast for GDP and other things starting in 2007, and with one, one year, exception of one year, they have consistently overestimated they start off at 4% real GDP. They crank it down to 2%. Well, in line with that, of course, they're looking for uh, a lot more inflation. And, of course, we're now in deflation, not inflation. And they feel they have to raise interest rates. They've gotten to the point now where uh, they almost have to do something because their credibility is at stake. They painted themselves into a corner. Uh, and, and let's come to one thing, other thing you were saying just a moment ago, and that is we're in this deflationary cycle. Uh, and you sort of get in it and you sort of think, I don't know, see any way out of this. With the size of the debt problem that's out there that is unraveling, as you said in your book, the age of deleveraging, uh, I don't see how we get out of this, uh, you know, in the short term. But I know that's just a perspective of being here. So what kind of timing do you have that will finally kind of be through this? You, as you say in your book, you said, hey, get ready for 10 years of this. Well, normally it takes 10 years, uh, but that's a... That's an average of uh, a lot of uh, centuries and everything from developed countries to banana republics. Uh, and and it's, it's about the best we've got to go on. At the rate we're going, we're six years into it. If you simply put a, a straight line on the extent to which excess debt has been worked down in the U.S. consumer sector and financial sectors globally, it'll probably take a, a, another another six or eight years, not another two years to complete. But Whenever when it is completed, I, I think we will resume rapid growth. And of course, right now with slow growth, it's a very easy sell. There are a lot of forecasters running around and saying, "Oh, slow growth forever, slow growth forever." Well, well that's easy to sell because everybody looks around and says, "Right on, brother." That's what I see. Yeah. But I don't think that is uh, that is uh, permanent. It is there while we have this deleveraging. But of course, it'll probably it, we're, we're getting to the point where people are beginning to realize there's something out there. And it isn't going to be rapid recovery, but still hope springs eternal, and particularly among policymakers. You know, they don't say, look, we can't control this. We just got to wait this thing out. Oh, no, no. We're going to manipulate monetary policy. We're going to do something with fiscal policy. I mean, these guys credit themselves with a lot more power than they really have. 
Well, you know, the other thing is that, of course, this record low interest rate uh, that we've seen, uh, central banks moving in, I believe it's because uh, politicians have shown such little leadership, uh, for example, in the U.S. or in Europe. I mean, there's been no structural changes in Europe despite their debt problems. So it just guarantees to me that the problems are going to continue. But, yeah, I think one of the big messages is that uh, despite all their efforts, still look at this slow growth world we're in. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, maybe we would have been worse, but we certainly haven't been enough to get us back to anything regarding sort of even average growth rates in, throughout the Western world. And now you've got a bigger problem in the emerging markets, too. Yeah, well, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, an old history professor of mine used to say, there are no ifs in history. You don't know what would have happened otherwise. But I think it's, it's probably reasonable to say if you had not had all the bailout of Wall Street and, and uh, other other financial uh, markets around the world, that things would have been a lot worse. But, of course, whatever they have done has not been enough to restore rapid growth. Again, it shows you the, the power of this, of this deleveraging. And, and, you know, I just, I just don't think that uh, these, all these attempts uh, – as a matter of fact, I think right now one of the most interesting things, and we've written about this in our, in our newsletter, Insight, is uh, that we, we may see so much frustration here – uh, and, we're, and we're seeing that with all the splinter parties around the world, you know, the National Front in France, far-right party. We're seeing uh, where Greece has a coalition of far-left, far-right. You're seeing these splinter parties in, in uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, 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 Italy. And, of course, you see the, the new leader of the Labour Party in, in, uh, in uh, U.K., who is very much to the left. These are expressions of frustration. Because there's been no growth in real, meaning inflation-adjusted incomes in the Western, Western world for eight years. And people are venting their frustration uh, by going for oddball candidates in this country, the U.S. we got Bernie Sanders on the left, and we got uh, Donald Trump on the right. And, okay, they're fine for comic relief, but they are, they are gathering a lot of interest. I happen to think that what's going to happen here is that now that monetary policy has shown that it really doesn't right the economy, that we are going to see a big push for fiscal stimulus. Now, maybe it'll take a form of, of just handing out checks, uh, welfare checks. Maybe it'll be do something productive like a deal with infrastructure, which particularly in this country we need a lot of work on. But I rather suspect that's the next big thing coming down the road. I'm talking to uh, Gary Schilling, and you can find him at A, the letter A, agaryshilling.com. Uh, author. He, as I say, you've uh, probably read him in Forbes, New York Times, but uh, also the author of Insight, a, a great publication that deals with this. And I'm going to come back because I want to touch on a couple of things. Canadians are caring about commodity prices, whether they're investors or whether they're governments, actually. I'm going to ask him more about commodity prices. I'm going to get specific with oil on that. And then what should you be doing in this environment? All of that coming your way with Gary Schilling on the Chorus Radio Network. Very pleased to have with me uh, Dr. Gary Schilling, author of Insight, a terrific uh, publication done uh, monthly. Uh, just great stuff in it, and I'm going to pick his brain on some of those things right now. Uh, Gary, just before the break, you had alluded to that uh, you still saw several years to go. I was interested to see in your latest publication, uh, re- alluding to what Barron said uh, in August, which is commodities, time to buy. Uh, I take yeah. it you don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think it may be a little early. And by the way, if anyone would be interested in a in a complimentary copy of our newsletter, they can call our toll free number. It's one eight 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 three four six seven four four four. 
Okay, I'll give that number again coming up. Uh, so, bottom line, uh, you know, people want to know about oil prices in this country. They've had uh, the drop in oil prices, which I'm proud to say I don't know another media outlet in this country that correctly predicted this drop. Uh, I still think there's another washout to come. What do you think? Oh, yeah. The thing is that uh, that uh, cartels exist to keep prices above equilibrium, and OPEC is a cartel. So that encourages cheating. Some members of the cartel or outside producers want more than their share. So the leader of the cartel has to cut its, its, its uh, production to accommodate the cheaters. Otherwise, prices would decline. Well, the Saudis have been doing that for years, and their Persian Gulf lies, and they're getting tired because all the growth in production in the last 10 years has come outside of OPEC. OPEC's been flat. It's come with uh, the, the oil sands in Alberta, the American frackers, and and basically what happened at the end of November is that, is that uh, Saudis uh, led OPEC to say, look, we're going to play a glorified game of chicken. We're going to see who can stand uh, lower prices longer. And they have about $500 billion in, in foreign exchange reserves. And, there's, and OPEC production, it was 30 million barrels a day uh, at that point, late November. That was their quota. It's now 31.6 million. They've taken off their quotas. They've said produce whatever you want. They're trying to force some major producer out to basically chicken out, cut production. Now, this is a price war. When you're a price war, uh, the prices that are the chicken out point, they're not the cost of meeting budgets. That's irrelevant. It isn't even the full cycle cost, the cost of drilling a hole, putting in the pipes, all the infrastructure. No, no, no. The, 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 the relevant price is the marginal cost. It's the point at which the uh, the free cash flow disappears. In other words, the price just equals the marginal cost. And in the Permian basis in, in Texas, that's 10 to $20 a barrel. And in the Persian Gulf, it's the same or even less. So I, I said this early in the year. I thought we, we could see that price. It wouldn't stay there forever, but we could see that uh, and, and, uh, be as a washout and, and, the, and the chicken out point. Uh, and again, uh, the huge implications in Canada for that, as you've already alluded to, our currency. Uh, one of the recommendations that we've been making that certainly coincided that uh, with your recommendations in Insight is to have U.S. dollars for a Canadian public and significant amount of U.S. dollars. Uh, do you see the bottom in the Canadian here? Are we sort of finding it or uh, more to come? I'm, I'm never very good. I've got to tell you, I'm never very good at picking uh, tops or bottoms. I just look sure. at the fundamental forces. And then I wait for the markets uh, to tell me uh, that it's working, and, and, and we manage money. Now, of course, there are a lot of false starts. This is still an art. It's not a science. But that's our approach. And right now, uh, I, I think there is no reason to believe that the, uh, that the commodity currencies, the Kiwi, the Looney, the Aussie, the Mexican peso, are, are at their bottoms. Now, of course, in the last week or so, there's been this feeling of, well, uh, things have washed out in the emerging markets and commodities have hit a floor. But nothing has really changed. you got all this excess supply coming. And look at hard rock mining in Brazil and in, and in Australia. These guys are so deep into projects that they're producing even at losses because that's cheaper than shutting them down. Uh, in, in, and, and demand globally is, is growing, but very slowly. So nothing has really changed fundamentally, and I think it puts a lot further prices, downward price, uh, pressure on commodity prices in general, and oil in particular. 
Where does someone, uh, and again, this is very broad, so let's be very clear. I'm asking Gary to paint a broad picture here. Everybody has to do things uh, according to their own personal circumstances, uh, their risk profile, their emotional risk profile also, that kind of stuff, time frames. But I'm just getting a broad brush. Very quickly, Gary, uh, then where does, where does someone have their money right now? Well, I can tell you uh, how, that where we are in the portfolios that, that we manage. Uh, we are long U.S. Treasuries because uh, deflation is really unfolding, and they obviously benefit from uh, lower prices, negative prices, and, and treasuries are, are, the, are the ultimate safe haven uh, in the world. Uh, secondly, we're long the dollar, and we're long the dollar against, uh, against uh, the euro, again, the, the, uh, the commodity currencies, Kiwi, Aussie, Looney, uh, Mexican peso, and then, the, and then the third major areas were short commodities. Uh, things like sugar in the agriculture area, copper, uh, uh, oil, uh, I think they have a lot further to go. Now, we, we're not saying we're in a bear market for stocks. Stocks have been going nowhere lately. We do have some uh, equities in our portfolio. They tend to be defensive, things that people buy regardless. These are things like consumer staples and utilities that also tend to pay decent decent dividends. Uh, so we're not saying you're in a big bear market in stocks, although obviously equities have, have basically been declining in recent months. But boy, you get in the wrong sector on the decline. Boy, is it ever vicious, like the gold stocks or the 3D printing stocks, uh, biotechs recently. That's one of the reasons I've advised people to, you know, to, to be careful that cash is an important component of portfolios now. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. In our yeah. portfolios, we have, an ex- we have extraordinarily high cash positions. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember when we've ever had higher cash positions. And, and a lot of this, and again, we've written about this in our monthly newsletter, Insight, it's because of the increased volatility. And, and uh, you know, part of that is because the Fed is no longer buying securities. They're out of the quantitative easing business. Uh, you've got, uh, you've got uh, a volatility because profits are basically going nowhere. They've been supported not by solid revenue growth, uh, but, but really by cost-cutting, and that doesn't seem to be working anymore. Uh, you've got a lot of number of factors that, that we think make it very difficult to get excited about, about stocks. So we're saying, hey, let's uh, – Let's take a defensive position. Well, as usual, Gary, it's just such a pleasure to talk with you. And I want to give that number again. Uh, you should look at this uh, copy of Insight. It's terrific stuff. one 346 7444 Dr. Gary Schilling, my guest. Gary, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. I'll take a break. Hey, I want you to stay with me for my shocking stat. Listen to this one coming up. Coming up, I got no. I've got I got Victor Dare. He's live in the trading desk. I got some stuff to ask him about what he did last week. I also have Ozzy Jurek. I'm just asking Ozzy, give me some hot properties this week. We're talking about how to get yield or how to get good investments. I'm going to get a little list of hot properties from Ozzy Jurek in just a minute. And by the way, you should be going to MoneyTalks.net. Give you a quick example. Bob Hoy talking about precious metals this week, uh, called for the rally that we've just exhibited from 11.45 to about uh, 11.85 in this window. Find out what he thinks now. Uh, It's going to be interesting. Uh, But that's moneytalks.net. You can also get, by the way, the daily business comment that I do, 
had a lot of fun with one on Monday that seemed to catch, uh, at least get a lot of response. Uh, I did my speech if I was running for prime minister, tongue-in-cheek, I might add, uh, plus some other, I think, important stuff. Time now for this week's shocking stat of the week. Here's your number. In the federal government, there are 357,000 Think about that. 357,000 employees. That's just the core public administration in their agencies uh, at Crown Corporations and Parliament. That payroll, by the way, is over $34 billion. Then you've got to add on the benefits packages. Tens of million, billions there. That's 357,000. But then you can add on 100,000 in the military RCMP personnel. Then you've got hundreds of thousands of contract workers. There are 101, this is by my count, 101 core departments. There are 26 agencies in the federal government. Then there's 71 crown corporations and other government sort of enterprises. That list stretches from things like the CRTC uh, to the Office of the Commissioner of Official Languages to Canadian Heritage to the Finance Department to Social Sciences and Humanity Research Council of Canada. You would be blown away if you're not familiar with this list. The incredible range we're talking about here. 101 core departments, 26 agencies, 71 crown corporations, government enterprises, 357,000 employees. The government's going to take $290 billion in taxes this year from individuals and businesses. They're going to spend very close to that, about $289 billion. So I want you to think about this. Think of the size of the federal government, the degree to which it penetrates society. That's my shocking set of stats. And I was shocked at, by the way, the number of core departments and agencies and crown corporations. My goodness, my head just swam when I was trying to count them up. But that brings me to the most depressing aspect of the federal election, the part I want you to listen to. I have no problem with people who do not vote. I don't think democracy is served by ill-informed voters. What important decision would be? So I don't have a problem with that. My problem is with those people who base their vote on the most superficial of reasons. I cannot believe when people have shared with me how they're going to vote, and I say, why? That's always my question, why? They look at me and say, it's about how the leaders look. It's like whether they like them or not. Of course, they don't know them personally. And their impressions are completely formed by marketing campaigns of, of somebody or other, the, the other parties or media commentators. Good night. I can't believe how many people are prepared to say that kind of thing when asked how they vote. I mean, the superficiality is breathtaking. This isn't a reality TV show. We're talking about our future, many times our financial future more important to me personally is we're talking about my children's future in an incredibly uncertain world. But we're talking about someone to head up a government of 357,000 core employees. You know, 200 departments or crown corporation enterprises. They spend 290 or 90 or 289 billion a year. And I'm hearing people openly admit they think they should make that decision by how someone looks or sounds or some other ad hominem attack which all parties participate in i mean doesn't our country deserve more it's as i say it's mind-blowing why don't we ask more of ourselves 
We've had tons of time in this campaign to educate yourself. And if you're one of those people, I hope your car breaks down on the way to the polling booth. Because you're about to make a decision, a serious decision, in a way that you would not make a single other one in your life. Why, is that how you're choosing your doctor nowadays? Gee, someone's going to operate in a loved one, and you're starting to say, well, I just love the way that guy looks in a sweater. I don't like a beard. No, I'm not going with that. You know, come on. So I hope your car does break down if that's the caliber of the decision you're about to make. But, you know, come on, let's ask a little more. There's tons of opportunity to read more in-depth about what's going on in this election. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Aussie Jurek's going to inundate me with hot, hot properties. Plus, i got a great Goofy Award for you. Actually, it's a shocking, depressing Goofy. Stay with us. One part of my Goofy is so absurd. It may be the worst relative in history. I know that's big competition, but recent history then, let's say. I also have a serious Goofy. I'm not sure if I even want to get to it. It's so depressing. But right now, Ozzy Jurek joins me on the line. Ozzy, we spent uh, a lot of the morning talking about ideas for people in this kind of environment. Gary Schilling was talking uh, with Kyle Green earlier, and I thought it'd be fun if we could just talk about some hot properties with you because it's not all what Michael Levy was alluding to, record high, uh, what, 2.77 or something million dollars for a house in West Van. No, there's some other stuff out there. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Well, I, I went to see a hot property yesterday. Mind you, it's only a hot property if you're a multi-bazillionaire because uh, <laughs> Island, Island House Sellers, a great uh, Keller Williams company of Winkle Island, they flew me over, me and uh, 12 investors and eight realtors, and we went in a helicopter on this $10 million mansion, believe it or not, in Saanich Inlet. Gorgeous place on 46 acres, place to drool over, but um, not really for everybody's wallet. <laughs> was it overpriced? No, I think actually it was well priced. The, the it was at ten million. Price. Yeah, at ten million, because you have the acreage, you have it, and splendid for a setting, and yeah. but it's well priced for the right pocket. It's not. It's yeah. not. Uh, you know, it is not. Ten million is slightly out of my range. That's for sure. Yeah, we better get back to my pocketbook right now, because <laughs> I know you do. You look around the provinces, you know, throughout the country, down in the states, you know, for stuff that's a little more affordable for us. So, you know, give me an example. Yeah, for instance, you know, uh, you know, if you look at, at houses in BC, you think, oh, you can't, you know, millions and millions. Well, there's many areas in British Columbia, nice little towns. We can buy a full three-bedroom, two-bathroom house under 100000 For instance, we found a really nice-looking picture one in Trail, then Creston, which is a gorgeous little town, two-bedroom, at uh, one bath at 99 And in Grand Forks, we found a three-bedroom, one bath at 99 And imagine in Lillooette, there was a three-bedroom, one bath, three-bedroom, one bath for 65000 I mean, anybody can afford that. Yeah, how does that work? Just give me the, uh, this is putting you on the spot, and I know this, but can you sort of give me how the numbers work on that? Let's say, as you say, you just gave us three, one trail, one question, one Grand Forks, all great places, by the way. A fin- yeah, a fantastic scenery. So, yeah, scenery in a family environment. So let's take, it's a young couple, and, and say you take the $70,000 three-bedroom uh, three home in, in trail, $3,500 down because you need 5%. That's only $295 a month on a mortgage. Add $80 in taxes and $80 uh, on a starter fee if it's a condo, then you're $455. And if you yeah. bought a $100,000 house, it's $5,000 down. The payment is 417 Add 100 in taxes. Your total monthly payment is $517. I mean, it is really cheaper than renting. 
Yeah, that, that's what, it's, it's funny you just said that. That's just jumped out at me. Uh, uh, you got a couple of others for us? Yeah, well, you look at, uh, you know, you say, okay, that's that's Trail and, and Creston and sort of far away, but take a look at some of the condos that are available in Surrey. One bedroom, one bath from 69,000. Abbotsford, 69,9. Chilovac, 84,9. Maple Ridge, 79,000. And the two and three bedroom range in Abbotsford, we've got one at 83,5. In Delta, there's one at 90. And there's even a two, two bedroom, one bath, older condo at 69,9 in Surrey. My goodness gracious. And you go to Prince George, three bedrooms, three baths, a very nice unit at 95,000. So even for the investor, I mean, if you took in your, in your investment uh, 20% down in order to get the 80% financing, if the rental value is around $800, your return on your down payment is somewhere in the 8 to 11% range. Yeah, and that's and again, we we're just talking with Dr. Gary Schilling, and, and uh, of course, it's my view also that we keep pushing uh, any rise in interest rates way out into the future in Canada, even more so. I don't see any reason for that bump up, uh, so it's a, a real opportunity. I keep asking myself, Ozzy, you know, we look back, uh, and I go at the 1981-82 period. You know, it, it's the old if you, as Dr. Gary Schilling recommended to his subscribers, hey, buy these long-term bonds. I wonder what we'll say about this period, because as Jim Dine said last week, 3,000-year lows in interest rates. Well, this may be one of the areas you want to uh, at least look at to take advantage of that. Yeah, and we should also remember, you know, we talk about the $2.9 million average house here and there, and then we we have this this quote from, from Phil Soper, who I knew well. He replaced me, by the way. I used to be the president in that position at Royal Page. Mm-hmm. And Royal Page now saying it's the, the foreign investment is only 2%, and CMHC says 3%. It's just not the case. I mean, we have prices rising, for instance, on Maine and 33rd, on Quebec, in those areas. They've risen from a million two to a million eight now maybe two million one in less than a year and two months. That is not local money coming in, and there's so much of it. But when you go through the rest of the problems, even the Fraser Valley, the market in the condo sector is absolutely not participating in that. So we have two very distinct markets. The very rich that usually come from somewhere else, and by the way, not all from China. They may be from Iran and Russia and and and, and the Ukraine and other different areas. But that money is driving the, the upper end. Everybody else is a different kind of market. Well, to check out these hot properties and others, go to uh, uh, juruk.com, J-U-R-O-C-K, juruk.com, and just click on the hot property button. Ozzy, go out and have a terrific weekend. We will. Take care. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Victor Dare and a Goofy right here on the Chorus Radio Network. Coming up, my Goofy Award. Uh, Victor Dare joins me now live from the trading desk. Uh, Victor, last week you told us you had just put sort of a toe in the water in a couple of open positions. Uh, as you said, the kind of rally that you were experiencing, we were experiencing the markets you thought was just, you know, in an ongoing decline, but it just rallied against that for a while. Where are you sitting now? Uh, you know, Mike, I'm going to just be very similar to uh, that great interview you had with Gary Schilling. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his, by the way. I remember reading his book in 2011, and, and I got much more aggressive about uh, switching chunks of my net worth into U.S. dollars instead of Canadian. So, and just also to make the point, you know, I, I divide my, my, my money into what I would call my long-term trading and then my short-term trading. With my long-term trading, I have definitely maintained that position in U.S. dollars uh, as a hedge. On my shorter-term trading, you know, I can go in and out of the market in very short-term periods. I thought that 
and let's say it, let's set it, set it up this way. In any bear market, and we have been in a bear market in commodities for four years, the flip side of that, we've been in a bull market in U.S. dollar, but in any bear market, you can have sharp rallies. We call these bear market rallies. And some of the things that have been hammered down the sharpest get the biggest bounce. I think that's what we've had here over the last six weeks or so that's caused the Canadian dollar and the other commodity currencies to go up, caused gold prices to go up, caused crude oil to come up from you know the $37 low that we had back in September. So I have waited out, I would say, this bear market rally and looked to establish some short positions. Now, I got short in crude, in gold, and in Canadian dollars uh, the week before. The crude worked out real well this week. Gold has gone against me, and the Canadian dollar went against me. I have uh, covered some of those short positions and then put some of them back on. At the end of the week here, I am still short Canada. I'm short gold, but not as short as I was, and I remain with my short position in crude oil. Uh, you know, it's interesting within this. There's the other side, very quickly, Vic, who's, you know, uh, that we have to remember there's not always a reason in terms of fundamentals, like more supply, more demand. It's what you alluded to last week, that sometimes people are just uh, changing their position. So, exam- like, for example, let's say you played oil to go down, and you say, okay, that's enough at this point. I'm going to buy it now just to close out the position, that can push it back up. There's so much financial movement going on, not related to the fundamental news. It might be related to a hedge fund has to liquidate or what have you. Well, I'll do this really quick. Um, the, the U.S. dollar is the other side of any currency trade. It's the other side of commodity trades. And I think we have seen, particularly in gold and crude oil over the past six weeks or so, people trying to pick the bottom whether it's in the uh, commodity itself or the shares of companies that are in that game. We have seen the long bullish positions in the U.S. dollar, like the outstanding size of the bullish bet on the U.S. dollar is down about 60% from the highs that we had a year ago. So there is positioning in the market, and when you have a bear market rally, that is uh, largely short covering. People who have been short think, oh, gee, I think I better get out and cause those prices to jump. So, yeah, it doesn't, as Gary pointed out in his interview just moments ago, he says nothing much has changed. He thinks we're still in a bear market in commodities, but you'll have these ups and downs. Mike, I could be dead wrong on this, and, of course, I deal with that in terms of managing my risks. The market keeps going up. I'll just say, well, wrong on that and liquidate the positions, but that's what I believe for now. Well, we'll be here to chronicle it, Vic. Thanks so much for taking the time. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Mike. Victor Adair here from live from the trading desk. My thanks to Victor. Also, my thanks uh, to Dr. Gary Schilling. And if you want to listen to this again, listen to what Ozzy had to say, what Michael had to say, what Kyle Green had to say. Hey, it's easy. Go to moneytalks.net. Click on uh, right there. You can get the daily business comment, but you can also get the interviews. Uh, you can get a replay of the shocking stat and this goofy award. My thanks also to the Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment. It's in the tech industry, and there's no fees attached to it. So why don't you get more information by going to solaraclub.com? Oh, I had a simple one. Did you see that aunt who was suing her 12-year-old nephew, by the way, for $127,000 in damages because on his eighth birthday, she came to the party. He was really excited and came and jumped in her arms, gave her a big hug. She fell down, hurt her wrist. And now in her own words, she's had trouble lifting her plate of hors d'oeuvres. Anyways, she's suing her own 12-year-old nephew over that. That's not my goofy award. This is a serious one. 
this past week, Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, he had 20 climate scientists join him in this, demanding from President Obama that corporations and other organizations be investigated for knowingly deceiving the American public about the risks of climate change. They want them to use what are called the RICO laws. It's an acronym for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act to go after anyone who questions their climate agenda. Here's the key. Those laws were enacted to stop organized crime, mainly the mafia, and specifically to prosecute individuals tied to things like loan sharking or murder for hire. And yet they want to use it for people who don't subscribe to their climate agenda. I, uh, this is unbelievable. Well, it's not unbelievable. It's in fact, this is where they're going with this. What would we expect? The absolute assault on debate, on questions, and on free speech by climate change agenda extremists has got to stop. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It doesn't, you know, regardless of your stance on climate change, this should really deeply trouble you. They are aggressively opposing free speech. Want to bring criminal prosecution to anyone who disagrees? Unfortunately, the story is getting repeated on a regular basis on university campuses on a wide variety of subjects. I mean, the intolerance is incredible. Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black stated in quotes, the framers of the Constitution knew that free speech is the friend of change and revolution, but they also knew it's always the deadliest enemy of tyranny. We've got to ask ourselves what next, but that is going way too far in my books. Way too far. In fact, words fail me on that one. That's my Goofy Award for this week. Again, thanks very much for listening. Go to moneytalks.net. Bob Hoy on gold. Uh, pick up the business comment. You can pick up the Goofy again, but especially listen, re-listen, get your friends. You can listen to Money Talks anytime. Listen to Dr. Gary Schilling and all of our guests. Thanks for listening.